um, women are not able to go about their business without thinking about how will I have to look over my shoulder? Do I have to look over my shoulder? Have I got my phone? Have I got keys? You know, that sort of thing. It's, it's about feeling, for me, it's about feeling that I can move around in a space without this hyper, hyper vigilance. Hi, and a warm welcome to season four of Brown Don't Frown podcast. I hope you're well and safe wherever you are. BDF's first episode went live in October 2019, and since then, BDF has brought three seasons and over 40 incredible guests and their stories straight to your ears. I hope you've been able to learn from them as much as I have. I am your host, Tanya Hardcastle. Brown Don't Frown spotlights the experiences of a diverse range of women and brings new perspectives. I hope you finish each episode feeling more rounded, energised and inspired. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Brown Don't Frown. I'm joined today by Deborah Broomfield. She's an urban and regional planning graduate and a doctoral candidate in women and planning. Her research focuses on spatial inequalities, urban planning, and their intersection with deprivation, race, and class. Welcome, Deborah, to the show. How are you doing? Well, um, I'm well. I'm, uh, I'm trying to get through all this madness. Um, with COVID disrupting all our lives and um, also in mourning really for the 125,000 plus people that we've lost um, in this country. Um, I'm just trying to get through each day and just thankful thankful that I'm still here. Yes. And it hasn't affected Touchwood um any of my family i've not lost any family i know of family members who have had covid but they've come through it um thank god oh that's a relief that's good to hear yeah i mean likewise i've not had um any i don't know anyone who's suffered or who's ended up dying from it i know some people have had some serious symptoms and illnesses but they have managed to recover which i think is really is a a great blessing in this really difficult time um it would be lovely if you could tell us a bit more about yourself um where you're from what you do and things like that oh that's um my pleasure and i'd like to Thank you for inviting me to speak on Brown Don't Frown. Um, Basically, I live in Hansworth in Birmingham, which is uh, classed as one of the deprived inner city suburbs areas um, of the UK. Um, Mm. And also I was born in Birmingham. My parents came over to England actually they came to Sheffield uh, in during the 1950s so they came on a ship apparently my mom's still alive but she uh, she's gone back to Jamaica now they came from Jamaica my mom's around bless her my dad died in 1968 when I was a child Um, but 
my mom remembers spending a three-week journey on a ship coming to England. And I can just imagine, I mean, I don't know if I could do that really. So whenever I speak or um, I'm asked to say anything, I always remember them and the shoulders on which I stand. That's a lovely bit. Yeah, that sounds really nice that you shared that story about your parents. It sounds like they've got a lot of history when it comes to coming to England and their sort of migration story. And as children of immigrants, I think we always have really lovely or very enduring stories about how our parents came to this country, how they made their lives. My mum worked in the NHS. She was a midwife and my dad was a sign writer. Um, You know, these posh signs you see outside coffee shops and that sort of thing. My dad did those signs for the old fashioned shops and apparently worked on the mines in Sheffield, which my mum told me a few years back. But I've done a variety of things. I've worked in the public sector. I worked in the public sector for several years in various um, senior manager and development roles. And I decided um, to take voluntary redundancy in 2011 because I had burnout. I was really stressed. So I decided to leave the council. Um, So when I left in 2011, it was an up and down journey, like a roller coaster, because you think um, when you leave, an institution or a structure such as the public sector of the civil service, you're going to walk into another job and that necessarily doesn't happen. So I had to go through a process of being really down, up and down, then thinking about reinventing myself. So the reinvention came through an opportunity um, to, to train as a community researcher Interesting. Um, with urban planning, which is where your field is in now, I mean, it's synonymous with town planning or city planning, and it sort of overlaps with, I'm sure you can tell me, uh, politics and technical knowledge, because of its focus on sort of land use and the built environment, encompassing things like infrastructure, water, the air that we breathe, transportation and networks, and how we communicate and ensure that all of those facilities are accessible for everyone. And you started delving in a bit more about your career change later on in life. And I just wanted to ask, how did you get into urban planning and what sort of interested you about it the most to begin with? Well, to be honest, it wasn't planned. I think sometimes we go into an area um, by default, really. Um, I had the opportunity to study for a master's degree and the um, initiative that I trained as a community researcher with, uh, paid for the masters basically. So it was an opportunity, but I hadn't realized it was a planning masters until I got to the induction. So, but I thought, well, when I realized what it was, I thought it was regeneration, which is slightly different. But when I realized it was urban and regional planning, I thought, oh my God, it's going to be boring, but I'll stay because the university are paying for it and it will look, it won't look too good if I decide to walk, walk away. But I didn't walk away. Um, and that's, 
and I enjoyed the subject because I realized that it was something that I was living. I was living in an environment, or I am living in an environment that is planned and sometimes it's planned for us and we don't often have the opportunity um, to support that planning process. So I realized that, yeah, I could do a lot with this. I don't necessarily have to be a public sector planner or a development planner, but I can um, do work, different types of work around research, which I am interested in, but research and engagement and how our spaces impact how we live, which is to do with all the infrastructure stuff that you've mentioned, Tanya. So um, that was how I got into it. How I got into the women and planning side was that um, it was my master's dissertation. And I had a lecture one day when the lecturer mentioned women and feminist research in a sentence. And I thought, oh my, oh, I didn't know that existed. So I started to look a bit more at it and I decided to do my dissertation around women and planning, women planning and austerity. So I carried it through to my, um, I've carried it through to my doctorate, but I've, I also went to Leeds Beckett um, for an event a couple of years back, that was 2018, where my, my now supervisor, um, Karen Hallwood, organized a conference on women in planning. And I met really interesting kick-ass planners who were women. Oh, that sounds really and, amazing uh, that you got to you got the opportunity. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I've actually yeah, I've just started reading um, Feminist City by Leslie Kern. I think it was on offer for free over the last a couple of weeks ago. So I downloaded it onto yeah. my Kindle. And I've, I've, I've got to say, I've really been enjoying it. And it's making me think of things in a completely new light, like a lot of the spatial inequalities that we see in bigger cities and how they negatively impact or disproportionately impact women over men and some of the things I never thought about. Yeah. But... I think that's really important. And with Leslie Kern's work, it's accessible. Um, yeah. Anyone can read it. Anyone can relate to it. So that's what I'm interested in in my research journey, um, producing research that's not vague, not so much vague, but intellectualized and remote. I'd like to, um, I want to do something that anyone can pick up and they can read and they yeah. can relate, and they can relate to it. But I know that um, one of the speakers at the conference that really influenced me was Professor Clara Greed. Um, and her work is very accessible. And she also spoke about her experience being a planner. Now, some of these women were um, older. Um, her experience in the planning process and also what interested me was that she talked about safe spaces as well. She referred to safe spaces and what the Black Pentecostal Church, the role of the Black Pentecostal Church in supporting her. And she is, um, you know, 
very middle class. She might not say so, so but very middle class white planner. And it was interesting to me to think about the intersections, um, planning, and how we support each other in space. And it's so nice that you've been able to share some of your stories about how you came into planning and the people that you associate yourself with in terms of the circles of women who work within the planning industry, whether from an academic perspective or from an industry perspective. It's great that you've got a well-rounded sort of understanding of it based on your interactions and your networking that you've been able to do. I'm just going to move away now onto the pandemic, which has sort of resulted in us being confined to our homes homes and for many of us who live in cities in really limited spaces uh, without access to outdoor space or greenery for a long long period at this point um, I think we're, we're in well into a year now and how we build our city should be of course reflective of sort of the prevailing technological cultural social and economic demands and we know that for example that the introduction of proper ventilation and light evolved uh, as a consequence of respiratory illness due to overcrowded and poorly ventilated conditions a few centuries ago in Victorian times. And I just wanted to ask you, you how do you think that urban planning will respond to the changes we've seen as limited mobility and increasing homeworking due to COVID-19? I think in terms of COVID, um, it's exacerbated uh, movements towards speeding up changes. I think changes were in the pipeline anyway, but the, the fact that we, we've got this um, respiratory disease which can kill people um, has exacerbated and, and revealed dire inequalities um, in terms of how we live, in terms of the spaces that we live in, in terms of what people are able to do, really, families are able to do. And I think really it's, it's speeded it up. In terms of what um, the effects could be or might be is that we're looking at, um, I know that in the planning realm, in the planning world, there's a lot of discussions around um, traffic-free neighbourhoods, for instance, um, and the concept of the 15 stroke 20 minute city where um, an individual can actually access everything they need within a 50 minute, uh, 15 minute, not 50, 15 minute or 20 minute walk. Uh, I mean, that would so be, that would be a dream, wouldn't it? Well, I'm going to be honest about that because I live, the area that I live in, everything is within five, 10, it is within that 15 or 20 minutes. But the important thing is I was thinking about access, there is still the importance of accessibility, accessibility and the quality of what those resources are, you know, within that 15 or 20 minute um, walk. And also some of the the, the um, neighbourhood, the traffic free, the 15 or 20 minute neighbourhoods can actually be a form of gentrification. So the important thing I think is what can we do with what it is that we already have? So how can we enhance yeah. and how can we improve 
where it is that people are living already. Because mm. Hansworth, I live in Hansworth, it's a, it is, it does can fit into that category of the 15 or 20 minute neighborhood. But it just so happens that some of the access that we have to facilities, they're not particularly wonderful. The danger for me is creating this concept um, and creating uh, um, a danger of gentrification. Yeah, I mean, COVID has brought into really sharp focus the inequalities which sort of divide us in many ways, especially in, in bigger cities. And I mean, how would we respond to to that, to the fact that there is that inequality? And you're saying that the fact that people can reach, you know, all their amenities within 15 minute walks, you know, is that that's going to create gentrification? By that, do you mean that people tend to move away from areas where there's a lot of congestion? There are a lot I of think, people. I think in terms of what I meant about the gentrification, creating developments, new developments with unaffordable housing, the affordability is an important thing creating environments where if you've got unaffordable housing, which only attracts people who can afford to live there, it's going to gentrify the area in which that development is placed. Um, for instance, where I am, we have, and I'm, I'm sure it's all over the country, we have issues with houses of multiple occupation, um, dire, overcrowding, dire overcrowding. Sometimes um, there are stories of 15 or 20 people in two bedroomed houses. I've come across things like that, even you know, a few streets away from where I currently live. And you can tell yeah. from the outside that that is what's happening. And it's such a shame because housing should not be unaffordable. You know, it's a basic human right yeah. in my eyes, the same way that food is, you know, food, shelter are the two most basic things that every human should should have the right to um you've also referenced an urban planner called patsy healy in your work who defines planning yeah. as managing our coexistence in a shared space and you've also quite accurately pointed out how globalization and increased migration have made the world a smaller place and that they have increased the diversity of urban environments I mean, what do you think in, in, in light of gentrification and the challenges of overcrowded housing? I mean, how, what do you think it means to manage our coexistence in cities of difference where there's a lot of diversity, but there's also a lot of overcrowding and difficulties with economic inequalities as well? Well, um, economic inequalities, for me, it's all politics. It's, it's connected with the political, the political structures and the economic structures go hand in hand. However, um, if I'm thinking about how I refer to Patsy Healy, uh, we have super diversity in our cities where we have communities within, within communities. And sometimes I'm not saying that it, that you know, because I'm speaking from an independent observational viewpoint. Sometimes communities are moved into areas and, um, and sometimes we're just left without appropriate support. 
and there's a reliance on, okay, they'll just fight it out. I know there, there are theoretical arguments around that, um, you know, because strangers can become neighbours. Um, I mean, there, there, there has been some work with, um, I've quoted Patsy Healy, and um, there's another, there's uh, Sander Cock, and there's different th thinkers who think about, who look at this issue about how strangers can become neighbours. And I think there's there can be an issue of communities just fighting things out and fighting for limited, when I say fighting, not literally, but struggling over limited resources. Yeah, um, yeah, that's true. So you think there's, there's a tendency... Investment. Yeah, do you think there's a tendency for councils, for example, where there's a shortage of council housing for there to be a situation where, you know, perhaps migrants and working class communities are sort of pitted against each other? Well, um, I possibly, I mean, they might, they might, they, they might deny it. But um, in terms of who ends up in the most overcrowded areas, it's normally... Um, individuals on a low income, individuals of colour, new arrivals into, um, into the country, new arrivals into an area. So it could be construed and possibly at a community level when we look at what austerity has actually done to communities, done to, um, how austerity has impacted communities over the past 10 years or so. Um, there have been severe cuts in elements of support. In terms of austerity, it's been around ever since the, well, it's been around for a long time, but we've seen the, its impacts most proficiently in post-recession, post-2007, 2008, where public resources public finances have been severely limited resulting in a lot of cuts to things like community centers facilities with swimming with baths with community centers and other facilities which are traditionally uh, managed by the public by the government or local government or local councils and that brings me on to my next question about the role of safety for women and girls in public spaces, which has been rising up on the public agenda, I think, since the recent Sarah Everard case. I wanted to get your sort of insights and your input around how we plan more effectively with women in mind to improve our towns and cities without encroaching unreasonably on people's privacy. So for example, you know, they've spoken about ramping up surveillance and CCTV footage, but we know that there are so many cameras in a city like London, for example, where it's just saturated with a lot of surveillance equipment. So how do we make that balance between protecting women and vulnerable groups versus security and the ability to sort of encroach on people's private and personal spaces? I think in terms of, um, if I might look at sort of public sector planning, and master planning and local planning approaches. Um, they may say what I'm going to suggest, but I know that um, I have heard issues around the lack of consultation and involving communities 
um, in at the very beginning of um, a, of a development process, mm. and uh, that's that that is. I think there, there may be a difference in perception, but sometimes you get community perceptions that we are not always involved in what is happening. I can understand sometimes it can be perceived as certain groups being, uh, I don't like the term difficult to reach or hard to reach, but I know that's being used, but the work needs to be done as to how it is that we actually reach those communities. Now, for yeah. instance, if how to design spaces for women, why aren't we involving local mothers, local women in um, our planning processes, in our design processes? How are we communicating with them? Yeah. Why aren't we paying for childcare, for instance? You know, if someone has a child or, a better, or several children that they can't bring along with them to... I know it's COVID at the moment, but um, things may change. How can we support and um, subsidise women into coming along and to part in participating in consultation activities? I think that's important. Young people um, involving girls at school, um, at summer school, boys as well into looking at how they can actually what they perceive as safety and how they can um, actually help to develop their spaces and what do girls see as safe spaces I know there's work you know that it's been brought to the forefront but how do we involve ordinary people off the street yeah, I mean, one thing that's always really stood out to me growing up is that, you know, women, we need to go to the toilet more often than men for really physio- physiological reasons, like having periods, you need to go um, to urinate more often. And for me, I've always noticed that toilets can be quite impractical when I've seen mothers, for example, with prams, they're, they're unable to sort of fit the pram through the doorway, let alone, you know, into the actual toilet cubicle. So redesigning a city with a feminist philosophy is one where all sexes can be treated equally and it's about security and services and being mindful of how men and women can use space differently you know with pavements some of them can be really tiny or very narrow so that a a pram or a trolley or someone with a you know a physical impairment is going to struggle to get across on the pavement so in terms of security and being mindful about how space is used it's also important to remember that, you know, women travel on foot and use public transport a lot more than men who travel, tend to travel by car. Uh, we've also got problems with segregated playgrounds, which divide play areas between boys and girls, which usually results in boys having a larger play area. So f- things like football pitches, uh, you know, when cities make the effort to increase public transport use, that really, I think, really helps women out. Um, one good case study that I came across uh, is in Barcelona, 
where I understand that 60% of its road space is used up for cars. Uh, and they've started a, a pilot project called Superilla, where they've taken a square section comprising nine buildings and limited access to cars in that space between the buildings and replaced it with things like courtyards and benches and you know fully pedestrianized areas. And they've also built an app called No Means No, which allows anyone to report sexual, sexual assault, sexual harassment on the street anonymously. Um, and the idea ultimately is to create a map of where sexual assaults are most prevalent and then helping to identify those hotspots and, and helping to curtail any, any further assaults. And that's something I think big cities can really learn from because it seems to be the first of its kind, especially with that idea of the app. I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that and whether you knew of any other initiatives, any similar initiatives. Um, I've heard of that initiative. I've heard of what, um, in terms of Vienna, are doing. But also, for me, if I can put my perspective on, on things, there is a cultural issue and I don't mean in terms of race I mean in terms of gender about what girls and boys should be doing um, so for instance I have a park not far from here or the, the 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 playground the um playground there's a basketball pitch it's all male um orientated sport although women do play um, netball and they can play basketball, but there's a basketball pitch and there's a couple of, um, a couple of swings. And it, you go down there, there are people that walk, families that walk, because it's a really beautiful park. However, there's the cultural issue of what the expectation of boys and girls are, um, because maybe in certain areas, in certain cultures, boys play, are encouraged to play more um, than girls. Because I know that in um, my culture, although I, am, I have a British culture, um, but I have a Carib also have a Caribbean influence, girls did more of the work, housework, um, caring, you know, the caring side of things. So th there is a cultural conditioning and also possibly girls, some girls perceive themselves as not being able to do certain games and to inhabit certain places as boys. So I think we have a cultural and I'm sure that's been looked into. We have a cultural um, examination, a psychological examination that needs to be looked at. What is our, our role? I know as we people become more binary, um, as we um, inhabit different spaces, um, more of the public space, um, as opposed to just staying in the private space, although COVID has exacerbated that, um, there will be more questions asked as to what do girls and those that identify as female actually do? What is our role? What is our role? 
you've examined the sort of cultural influence and how cultural norms can enable boys and girls to have separate roles or different viewpoints and stereotypes but I think I'd go as far as to say it goes well beyond culture I think it's a an ingrained societal gender norm disparity issue where you know from for centuries women have been or girls have been confined to the home or where they have been you know allowed to go out and play they've been confined to you know, smaller tasks such as just hanging out uh, with their girlfriends, sitting on the grass, making daisy chains, whereas boys are encouraged to, you know, be sporty, be active, run around, play games. So the expectations, I think, are beyond just culture. I think it's a societal, it's a civilization issue that, you know, the whole world has done that historically. It's something that's changing a lot more now because I think you identified, you know, the, the concept of, you know, being non-binary, that people are allowed to not just stick to their gender norms you know quote unquote but actually go beyond that and identify their own personality beyond the strict confines of their gender and you know their sex and how they were born so that's a really interesting observation and the fact that yeah, we, have, in- we have space around here we have benches um places where people can sit but it's mainly inhabited by men which is yeah. quite interesting yeah. Um, so as I, I, I really think, as I said before, I know that there, there are um, examples happening in various European cities. Um, and as you say, it's more deeper than the cultural norm. It's a, a societal norm, it's expectations. Because I'm sure, because where I live in Hansworth, it's, well, it is quite a historical area, but in the Victorian times, you did have your parks. We've got a lovely park, but there, there was also the zoning where particular zones were set up for male and female. So women were, ex- you know, they stayed more, they stayed more in the home. They possibly walked, but they walked. They didn't walk unaccompanied. We are living in old zoning, um, especially in the in the UK, in England. Um, maybe zoning and also ideas about housing, which is not fit for purpose. But I know that's beginning to change. We are seeing yeah. changes, but maybe not as, as as quickly as we'd want them to because populations are changing, people's patterns and their ways of life are changing. We don't have the nuclear family anymore. Some people like to cohabit in groups. Others don't want a family. Yeah, there are a lot of multi-generational households, as you pointed out earlier, among migrant groups and housing often isn't really fit for purpose for those types of families, which is a bit of a shame. Um, but I think structurally, uh, you know, this country wasn't built based on that. However, I do know that with Victorian terraced housing, they were definitely overcrowded uh, during Victorian times where we had several families or, you know, workers living under one roof and you had the sort of workhouses as well, which were no doubt very cramped and probably sanitation wise, not very hygienic. No. Um, and I, I wanted mean, to, um, yeah. yeah, I wanted to sort of, move the conversation on to talking about the relationship 
between sort of space and race. I know we've touched upon quite a few cultural norms and how that influences our the way we inhabit different spaces. Um, but I wanted to sort of underline the impacts of climate change and how they affect the vulnerable and the poor the hardest. For example, those who are in less economically developed urban areas, uh, you've spoken about that already in Harnsworth in your local area, but things like high rise blocks and congested roads, um, polluted air, and essentially a lack of open green spaces, which are integral to, you know, these, these issues are integral to inner city life and black Asian and other minorities are most likely to, to live in those spaces. I don't know if you heard about this. You must've done about Ella Kissy Deborah's death, uh, the young girl from oh, yes. Grisham, yeah. following the asthma attack, which uh, I think they said was likely caused by high levels of pollution where she lived. And I think that's a, a really important case in point. Uh, and I wanted to get your perspective on, you know, whether you think the British planning system reflects the status quo or existing patterns of economic disadvantage or social deprivation, rather than, you know, really addressing it. Well, if I can think of, I'm trying to conceptualize and think about this. The, the, the reason, some of the reasoning behind why we've ended up, say black, black Caribbean, black African, um, Asian minority groups and other newcomers have ended up in various um, areas which are, on a healthy, it's due to the fact that, um, for instance, when my parents came here, this was where the work was. So we ended up in industrial areas, um, smoggy, dirty, um, dilapidated housing. So we were called to where the work was. But unfortunately, yes, some of us have moved out, some of us have stayed, but the status quo has remained. So we have um, ghettos and pockets of deprivation in um, highly industrialized cities. The unaffordable housing, a lot of the housing it is unaffordable unaffordable housing has been built, but it's right slap bang in the center of what is an area of deprivation. But the good thing is it's built by water. So it, it is where, the, um, where we live, where things are located. A lot of us don't live by canals. Um, we don't live by parks. If I think about, because um, you mentioned high rise, I, call, I do call them high rise and masonettes. Those came about in the 50s and 60s due to, you know, the regeneration, 40s, 50s, 60s, due to the regeneration of certain areas. So when people were, were shifted out of the slums, they were some moved back into these um, high-rise flats and these masonettes. Also, some of them became um, not so much so social housing. 
Yes, social housing, but in those days it was council housing. Yeah, I mean, I lived, I, when I was growing up, when I was really small, I think, maybe one or two, I yeah. remember, I've got vague recollections of being in a high-rise block and the lift breaking down yeah. and being stuck in a lift for that's several hours. That's what I was going to, that's what, yeah, that's what I was going to get to um, because the people that would go to the council were often people from minority communities, poorer white people and single parents. And a lot of single parents were actually placed in these masonettes. They were placed in, in these high rise blocks where the lift kept breaking down. Old, older white citizens, British citizens were also, you know, um, in these blocks. And so, it is a reflection. So, there, so the housing situation, there is, as always, been an element of not just environmental racism, but racism per se uh, about where people are placed. And I think that's ingrained in the, uh, that's ingrained in housing. It will probably yeah. take some time for, you know, um, for things to change. There's a a documentary which I watched a, a couple a while back, and it went back to 1968, and it was a World in Action documentary called Below the Line, and it looked at how um, Wolverhampton City Council at that time allocated housing, housing to minority groups and white people, and that kind of equated with the red line in approach that was used in America and it was I always look at, at language and how um, institutions and structures and make decisions and it was interesting how they actually assessed whether um, a black person or an Asian person qualified for all a new property on this development. And this went back to 1968. And an example they used was that they'd send around health, um, health officers, the people who'd come and look around your house. And if your bed wasn't made up, this was said on the documentary, you weren't eligible for a house. It was, it was seen as the woman of the house wasn't a good housekeeper. That sounds incredibly you know? arbitrary that that was a requirement. It doesn't even make sense in my head. It, in my current, obviously no. from a long time ago, but yeah, that's, that's yeah. really damaging, isn't it? But it's amazing how decisions which are made, this was over 50 years ago, possibly longer, a long time ago, can the language can become translated and ingrained in policy. So that language used then has become a different language now. For instance, putting and um, placing single parents in high rise blocks um, and creating those pockets of deprivation in different parts of um, different parts of the country. So for me, language is also important and how it cleverly gets translated. 
And that leads me to segue onto my question about safe cities, what they might look like um, and, and how they differ from, you know, 60 years ago when things were a lot different, where there was a lot of, as you said, pockets of deprivation and whether that created uh, fear, whether that created things, concepts like white flight, where, you know, wealthier suburban, wealthier uh, white people, white communities ended up moving into the suburbs because they saw that migration was happening at quite a fast pace and they wanted to get away from that. Um, I think one good example, is, I think you mentioned earlier in this uh, recording is uh, Vienna, Austria. Uh, through the lens of gender and the needs of women they have improved street lighting they've made parks more accessible for young girls by creating spaces for activities other than football and widened pavements which is one of my biggest pet peeves Um, a successful pilot apartment complex designed by and for women has also led to gender analysis requirements for all bids for city social housing contracts which is very interesting because we spoke about high-rise blocks and how they you know impacted things like getting up and down the stairs lifts being broken and what sort of impact that would have had for women with you know young children and it's interesting looking at that example and understanding what a safe city what a habitable city and a friendly city to women might look like and I would be interested to get your perspective on what you think a safe city might look like and perhaps you can use some of your insights from your understanding of you know high-rise blocks and gentrification and how that's impacted on people's conceptions of what safe cities are like? In terms of my um, perception of what a safe city might look like, um, I am interested in who is entitled to be in that space. And I think that's important. And I think that's what gender mainstreaming and equalities is about ensuring that everybody is has an equal access to that space so it's an interpretation really it's an understanding of who do we want in that space um that's that's one of my interpretations a safe city or a safe space will look like uh, an area or an environment where women or those who identify as are able to travel, women and children, young people, young men, are able to travel and to move around that space um, safely and in terms of being free from violence, perceived violence, actual violence, um, because I know that, for instance, where I am round here, um, there, there's been a couple of rapes quite recently. Um, so women are not able to go, and these are not late at night, and women are not able to go about their business without thinking about how will I have to look over my shoulder? Do I have to look over my shoulder? Have I got my phone? Have I got keys? You know, that sort of thing. It's, it's about feeling. For me, it's about feeling that I can move around 
in a space without this hyper hyper vigilance. Also, being in a safe space, uh, a safe city, also means that one can travel not so much not just free from violence or threat of harm, but harm um, from just being who you are. So, for instance, being a, a member of a, a BAME group, being able to think, well, can I go into that building? What might, how might people perceive me if I enter in that building? How might people perceive me if I enter in that space? Um, Non-binary trans people, how can I, can I really, access that space and feel wanted in that space. And I think it's about for uh, being in a safe city, in a safe space. It's also about feeling wanted. I absolutely, yeah, completely agree with you on that feeling. What two take homes that I got from what you've just said there is, you know, not having to feel like you're hyper vigilant everywhere you go, safe city. Secondly, the fact that, you know, you should you should feel like you belong there. You shouldn't feel like you are sort of out of place or that you shouldn't really be there or you have like, you know, that imposter syndrome that so many of us women tend to experience uh, in the workplace. But I also think in, in where you know, areas where we live, where we inhabit, you know, our, our local communities, our environments, if we feel like we are imposters, you know, in our in somewhere we should be calling home, then that really does raise questions about that particular area and, and what it means to whether it does even create a space, a safe space for women, non-binary people, people of color, trans communities as well, as you very importantly have highlighted. And whether, you know, cities can be safe and, and inclusive, I think is one of the key words here, of all of those communities and make sure that people don't feel like they're left out or they're excluded yeah. by virtue of their, you know, physicality or who, whoever they are, their identity. So I think you made, made some really I important points. I think we all need to participate. Yeah. To feel that we can participate in our spaces. In terms of how the pandemic might shake up things in terms of planning, it's... It was, you know, it emerged, the concept of planning as a discipline emerged, as you said, uh, as a result of a wider public health crisis and, and what that meant for the wider population and big cities where a lot of people tend to accumulate and are in very close proximity with each other, which is where things like sanitation, respiratory conditions, things like that, you know, arise because of that um, conglomeration of a lot of people. I think this discussion has been really interesting because it's highlighted so much that has happened over the last de few decades and the, the difference in terms of our well-being, our health, our public spaces compared to Victorian times, you know, a couple of hundred years ago to what it's like now. Um, and we've clearly come a very long way. But again, I think what some of these examples that we've spoken about today highlight is that there's still so much further we need to go. And I think you're a really inspirational uh, person, Deborah, because you've, you know, you've began, uh, you've begun your urban planning career later in life. You have had a long-spanning career in public service, so no doubt you'll have seen historically how, you know, the way things work uh, has changed, how working culture has changed, how the urban environmental planning 
landscape has changed as well. And as a woman and a person of color who's entered a niche, you know, a specialist field later in life, I wanted to ask you, and I think a lot of listeners might be able to relate to this or they might find it, you know, quite inspiring, you know, has anything been particularly challenging for you? And if there is any advice that you'd give to those who want a career change in life, uh, what, what might that be? A lot of challenges. I won't lie and say it's been easy. Um, but I think the good thing, one thing about me is that I was able to reinvent myself. And uh, because everyone's, uh, statistically, people are living a lot longer and we're having to work a lot longer. So um, an individual may have to have several careers in a like one lifetime. So the important thing is to be flexible and to be willing to um, ask for help. Uh, that's something that I do do. Ask for help, be willing to assess yourself, not, not spending a lot of time assessing yourself, but being able to um, reinvent, being able to plan and to be open-minded. I'm also very happy to work with younger people. Um, I'm open-minded and I ask for feedback. For me, it's about also being authentic, you know, being able to contribute positively. I think a lot of people can resonate with, you know, being comfortable in your own skin. But I think a lot of that comes with experience as, as we get older. I mean, comparing myself, you know, now to 10 years ago, I was a lot less confident. I, you know, I, I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. Whereas now, you know, I feel a lot happier in, in with who I am and who I'm becoming and where I'm going to go in the future. So I think it definitely comes with experience. But it's so nice and reassuring to know that, you know, we're not alone when it comes to having self-doubt. Because as you've said, it's a normal part of life. It's, it's a process that sometimes you do have challenges with yourself, but you can overcome them by you know recognizing your as you said your own knowledge and your experience and the fact that you have you know, your life is unique you can't really compare it with other people no two lives are going to be the same you know even if you grow up in the same household as someone doesn't mean you're going to have necessarily the same experiences as them which is why you know this whole conversation about public space and urban planning is so important because it can you know really shape someone's life and their outlook on how they perceive things so yeah I think that's really uh, important way of reflecting in terms of where you've come from how far you've gone and I think your story today will certainly inspire a lot of young people older people who you know might want a career change who might want to try something different and I think I remember you saying at the beginning of this conversation that you were unsure about what to do but then you just sort of went with the flow and I think that's one thing that we always forget especially as we get older we, we can become quite non-conformist we might become quite rigid in our ambitions in our way of thinking and it's important to be flexible as you said I think that's a really important mindset to have to be open to trying new things and clearly you've very uh, you know you've embodied that in a really really good way so I think kudos to you Deborah you've done an amazing you've had an amazing um, career within urban planning and your career before that as well from what I understand thank you yeah, that's how I appreciate that, Tanya, because as you say, sometimes we do have that imposter syndrome, you know, because um, when we do something good, so it is 
quite easy to say, well, did I really do that? You know, um, and I'm still working through that pro through that process. Before we end today's show, uh, I usually ask my guests to quote an extract from a book that they've recently read uh, and explain how they relate it to any feminist theme or anything else that they may feel strongly about. And if you've got anything like that today, it would be great. It's in celebration of women, and it's a selection of words and paintings by Helen Exley. And it's a beautiful book, actually. Um, So when I need a bit of inspiration, I do dip into it. And the one I'm going to read out is by a woman called Florida Scott Maxwell. To my shame, I don't know who she is, but I thought it sounded great and it resonated with me. At my age, I care to my roots about the quality of women. And I care because I know how important her quality is. The hurt that women have borne so long may have immeasurable meaning. We women are the meeting place of the highest and the lowest and of minutiae and riches. It is for us to see and understand and have pride in representing ourselves truly. Perhaps we must say to man, the time may have come for us to forge our own identity, dangerous as that will be. I love it. I think that's that's definitely words to live by, that's for sure. It's been an honour to speak to you. Thank you so much and take care. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you know someone who you think might like this podcast, then please let them know about it. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you hit the subscribe button and you'll be notified as soon as a new episode goes live. Earlier this year, I created a Patreon. I produce and host this podcast entirely on a voluntary basis, all on my own. If you enjoy listening and have benefited from this podcast, then please consider supporting it so that it can continue to provide you with engaging and meaningful content. I'd also like to take this opportunity to give a shout out to four of my lovely Patreon donors, Abigail, Rihanna and Alicia, as well as my fiancé, Nathan. Thank you so much to all of you. If you'd also like to donate, you can do so by heading over to patreon.com slash brown don't frown pod if you have any thoughts or comments or would like to get in touch and contribute to the podcast please drop us a line at brown don't frown pod at gmail.com thank you so much for listening until next time bye